Kia ora and welcome to the New Zealand Improv Festival Audio Archive. Bringing you live recordings and conversations from New Zealand's annual celebration of spontaneous theatre. In this episode, we bring you Taking Care of Yourself. A live panel discussion about performative mental health and how we can maintain our well-being. The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Bats Theatre in October 2020. Please note, due to technical difficulties, the audio quality is a bit poor at times, but the conversational content is always sweet as. And now presenting the NZIF 2020 conference series. Hi everyone. Uh, I think we're going to have a lovely uh, 45 minutes to an hour together and I think we really can just structure this um, a lot like a conversation rather than just us talking at you. So um, at times if you have questions for us, we may also have questions for you. So I hope that's okay. Uh, we're going to start with a bit of a and just talk a little bit about ourselves. Amelia, I'm going to just start with you first. Amelia, hi. Hi. Tell us about you and, yeah, anything, yeah, fancy sharing. So, yeah, my name's Amelia, and I've been in Wellington for about three years now, and my improv journey started two years ago. Um, this is the first time I've been part of the New Zealand Improv Festival, and I just feel really, really grateful to be here. Um, as well as this panel, I'm also participate, participating in workshops and going to see shows and uh, performing as well on Friday night. So um, really sort of like experiencing the festival from all angles. Um, so yeah, that's that's really cool. And uh, I guess uh, excited to be on this panel because um, I don't just do improv, I do other things as well. And um, uh, yeah, within like my day job and also personal life. Um, I've taken a real interest in, in mental health, both my own and other people's, um, and sort of like to, to build that into improv as well. So um, yeah, really excited to talk about it today. Hi Sarah. Hi. <laughs> um, I am Sarah. I was born in Rotorua, grew up in Snell's Beach, which is in Auckland, moved to Wellington, um, and been here for about 10 years. I studied theatre at Vic and then have gone on to do lots of performance in this city and around New Zealand since then. Um, and yeah, I really learned a lot around mental health throughout my time performing on stage, um, which has led me to now I run a company delivering mental health first response courses um, and we are building a mental health gym in the city which is all around the space where you can value your mental health, build tools for self-care and build connections for co-care as well. Um, so I'm very excited to be here on this panel and share a little bit about the merge of those two worlds together um, and inquire into what's on top for you in terms of what we want to know, how we can share resources and keep this conversation alive. Uh, Kira uh, Nicola uh, uh, grew up in Christchurch. Um, I've been living in Wellington now for 15 years. Uh, two kids, a 15 year old who is driving me to the point of distraction, speaking of mental health, and 12 year old. Um, uh, 
I just, here's an anecdote, let's start with an anecdote since we're speaking about mental health. I, uh, I fell in love with improv as a teenager um, and in the theatre sports days and did a lot of um, theatre sporting at the Court Theatre uh, down in Chichester. Uh, and, uh, and I was um, in a team called the Burnside Upstages. And um, on stage one night, I was um, being endowed um, that uh, fabulous game that I'm sure we're all familiar with. Uh, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get, like I couldn't get what, what I was being endowed with. And you know how they encourage the audience to like, if you get close to it, it's like, yeah, you're close to it. And if you're far away from it, they boo you. Well, that, that's what they used to do back in, I was a teenager. And I just remember spending five minutes on stage being booed, <laughs> constantly booed. And I walked on and I vowed never, ever to improvise ever again. And yeah, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I came back. Yeah, I found my way back, but it was, yeah, it was super traumatic. I remember that. So maybe we need to pull that game apart. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so uh, uh, definitely back in the input scene, have been for a number of years now. Um, I'm the artistic director of About to Name Drop Again, another awesome organisation called Voice Arts, and. Um, yeah, we use applied improv and applied theatre for community development and well-being. So, um, yeah, I'm really passionate about how um, play and performance um, is a really beautiful space for people to um, develop and, uh, and be emotionally well. Uh, okay, so that's the three of us. Um, we have a selection of questions here that we're going to gently run through and we'll just see where it takes us and then we may come to you for some extra questions or some, some things. Um, so this is a really interesting question. Why is mental health important and how does its value evolve when we present ourselves on stage? I'm just going to say that again because it's quite a lot to get. <laughs> mental health is important. Yep, I think we all get that. But how does the value of mental health evolve when we present ourselves on stage? It's a really big question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's focus on the second part of that question. How does it evolve? What happens to people, to us, when we put ourselves in this space of, of performer with our mental health? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully we're all thriving, you know? <laughs> we're in that space. Um, how you show up on stage is perhaps directly linked to what you're feeling, how your mental health looks at that time. Um, and I guess maybe if I just speak to personal experience, uh, I tend to do improv in some form every single week and just noticing. Um, the, I guess so the idea that mental health is a, is a spectrum or a continuum, and so um, showing up every week and just noticing how I feel about improv that week is often quite linked to how I'm actually just feeling like emotionally in my general well-being. So sometimes, um, sometimes I'll show up for improv and, and feel really energised and resilient and kind of just really, really sort of down to get into it. And then there's other weeks where I notice that there's certain barriers or I'm in my head or I notice a resistance and, and maybe like a, almost like a frustration with myself. Yeah, and, and that can really like affect maybe the, the work that I do or the 
how I feel about work that I do. Um, and then equally, like you can walk away from that rehearsal or class, and sometimes you're like, wow, yeah, like I really felt like I nailed it. Or sometimes you can walk away and be like, oh, you know, it was a bit crunchy, like it didn't really go so well. And I, and I think it's well for myself. Like I noticed that it's just really linked to like where I am on the the well-being spectrum at that time. Yeah. Um, performance, you're, you really have to pull yourself out. It's in ways that level of vulnerability that you feel. I also, from in my own experience, when I walk on stage, there's an immediate adrenaline rush, which is like I really have to. It's like flowing through my body to be able to perform and give. That's such a good vehicle. Yeah. Um, and that I noticed that actually, what's more important is the aftercare of performing. Yeah. What is the process and what is the care that I give myself after giving that much energy out? Um, and we, and there we, we talk about that and it's like up and then low. Mm. And yeah, that's the body is coming down from such a high yeah. performance. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of the importance of mental health and just building up tools and um, so the word resilience, which I think resilience is. Strong and togetherness, so you are a part of the process. And even if you're a solo performer, you're never performing alone. Actually, how can you strengthen that level of care between each other to ensure that you all feel good together on the stage and perform feel resilient together and know that um, depending on people's offers or how they are, that can actually really make a scene. If someone is feeling vulnerable, low, that doesn't mean that. Their performance isn't valid <laughs> on stage. It's just something to work with um, and actually connecting it up that before you go on stage and really help to understand how each other might be as a performer. And this is especially in the improv world. Amelia, I just wanted to um, ask you do you, do you, or both of you actually, particularly with the improv thing, uh, do you rehash scenes in your brain uh, after a show or after a training when? When, and do you notice that that happens more when you're, yeah, when you're when when you're not feeling at your best, you'll come off a show or come off a training and go and replay a scene. And go, I should have said that, or I could have said that, or been, oh, it would have been, yeah, yeah. Do you get that, that experience? Because I know I do. Yeah, no, I, I think I echo that experience as well. I, I think it swings both ways. Like that, um, if you if you come off and you feel like you nailed it, you sort of bask in the glory of that, you know, and. and uh, and then, but then equally, if, if you're like, oh, go on, I didn't really feel like I got there, it is that sort of thing of like, bugger, like, why didn't I think of that? Or that person, you know, why wasn't I there in that way for that person? And yeah, totally. So, the sort of like the um, the ripple effect yeah. extend, you know? And and, um, and I suppose that then brings into what Sarah's saying that aftercare, even, even just after like any sort of you know, performance, that knowing that there's people that, um, Around you to like support you and catch you, um, and then to also like support yourself as well, and um, yeah, not let it sort of not let the ripple go out. Yeah, <laughs> too far yeah. or too strong. I, I think it's so easy to leave a fabulous performance um, on stage and in the theatre, mm. and, and much harder to do that with a performance that hasn't felt quite right. And then it, then it, you take it home with you. I, I, you know, mm. I, I can get it on the car and arrive home. And drop back to Roma. Mm. I can see the rumination happening and then I can go to bed and still be ruminating and, and it's catching yourself and being aware and ruminating over and knowing that, you know, that 
needs to be, regardless of that, needs to be left on stage. Yeah. <laughs> and it really plays into the importance of debriefs. Mm -hmm. um, when we were making theatre, we started having debriefs after every show, and mainly it was because um, I mainly worked with Bob, who also runs Scarlet Bright, but she was the director of most of my shows, and we would, she would be giving me notes and feedback to implement the show the next day, but actually that in turn created a really nice way for us to reflect with each other moments that felt icky or not, and then we can work it through together, and then we can leave that at the theatre and then we can come back to that. And I then, now, I even promise to myself with even like conflicts between people or moments that feel sticky just in my general life where the boundary of if I'm thinking about it for a third time with such intensity then I have to address it. And that may look like requesting a conversation with someone or talking about it with someone. But just really knowing that that level of pervasive thinking can have a real impact on our health and well-being and distract us from things that make us feel good. It's nice that all the three, that all the three have done a third time. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Something must be done. And, you know, boundaries and stuff, discipline is hard in itself. I have thought about it for the third time. I don't do something about it. And the debrief, um, I just want mm. to yeah, echo that. Uh, we've just um, finished doing a short, short season at Surface Bar and um, you know, it's really tempting after a show because you know all your friends and family are kind of right there, right? Mm. And but you really do have to pull yourself together as a group mm. and yeah. do that debrief. And you know, we, we make a habit of each of us going, you know, we debrief it and then we each go around and say, what was the moment? What, what did you love? Yeah. And we just have a pile of moments yeah. that we really loved, yeah. and then we go off on our own journey. Lovely. And if you make it a regular part of like if that's part of the show is that the show finishes mm -hmm. the left, and then you have a debrief and that structure is in place, then you don't have to create that after the show. It's it's mm -hmm. there, it's a, it's a part of the process. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing in theatre especially is a lot of debriefs happen with alcohol. And it's like how can you have a debrief yeah. space yeah. that's not around sharing a beer yeah. or that use of um, yeah, it's like how can we reduce the the ways in which, because that's costly as well, <laughs> um, and it, it can also have an impact on health and well-being, and in moderation is fine, but if it's, you know, every single show every night, how can we create debris and not see yeah. it around? And, uh, you know, the, de the debris from the end and the check-in in the beginning, mm, yeah. so yeah. even before you go on yeah. stage, yeah. Yeah, coming together and what's on top. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just being able to flush out whatever might be needed to flush out. So, we do you both connect with that concept of checking as well? Absolutely. Multiple times a day, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. And I, I just, I just want to uh, respond to this question in a slightly different perspective. Um, so, one that's not um, uh, traditionally performance. Based as we know, in terms of um, uh, presenting ourselves in an official stage like we are here with, with lights, but um, because I do a lot of work uh, encouraging people to 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 play and perform, and where there are audiences and we're just uh, a group of people performing, and in that space um, where the focus is on uh, is on 
of joy mm. and uh, and social connection, um, then I see um, I see mental health just up and going. Yeah, yeah. and that's such a powerful um, the play aspect of golf. Um, when you take when you strip away the audiences and the lights and just in the mood of play, um, I think is something that everybody should everybody should have. Everybody should have their own thing called good. But they just come together with once a week consider it a cheap form of therapy. And play, yes. <laughs> and play together because it is, it's, uh, it's, I think it's incredible. I agree. Um, started working with corporates, which I really like, um, but we've got a lot of fear based techniques and we've got techniques into working with talking about mental health and resilience and workplace environments. and. It's amazing how much um, even just getting people to be in their body more yeah. and be a little bit verbally playful first as an entry point and then bodily playful and then like laughing yoga is a yes. concept that just being able to embody a laugh is really interesting how much it transforms. Uh, you're talking about a lot about degrees. Um, what are Ways that you would advise someone to um, to avoid debris being sort of like negative and hostile sort of because mm. I have experienced a few debris like that. Definitely, yeah. my first impulse is to say that they are hosted by someone who's neutral and mm. able to hold space for any conflict or any negativity that arises. That's as the space of debris space is a space that can hold that and actually process that and help them to reframe or understand each other's experience to then move past that. But I think definitely someone has to be for sure. And maybe even like just like speaking in I statements and sort of like speaking to your own experience and not um, not speaking in like judgments or um, so sort of observations by all means but not judgments or criticisms. Um, and yeah, it'd be like how was it for you as opposed to assuming that everyone else felt the same or we like to play this game called um, How Was That Moment For You? <laughs> and so I would go, um, hey Amelia, I'd like to play a game of How Was This Moment For You? Um, and I'm coming to her with a moment that was sticky for me, that, that I wasn't really sure what her intention was. Mm -hmm. And we agree on what that moment is. That was this moment where I was wearing a red shirt and you were by the fridge and um, I went to grab the milk and you took it out of my hands and put it back into the fridge. Do you remember this moment? I remember that moment. Um, and it's like, can, I, can you help me understand what your intention behind that moment was? Um, and it's a really good way to be like, oh, I understand that you didn't see that I was holding the milk. Oh, boy, <laughs> yeah. like, you can actually debrief that in a way that's much more playful and lighthearted and then helps each other understand more. Yeah, it is actually. If you're speaking specifically of debriefing the show, or Removing, removing personal association or any sort of blame attached to something. It's like a scene and a show is almost its own its own thing. So you can talk about that that scene when that happened and that character did. It, yeah, that felt. Mm. And it's not about what you did or I did. It's the scene itself. Um, so just removing ourselves from that because they t they do they take on a life of their own when they're out there. And even we sometimes don't. You know, it's like. They do have a life of their own, so speak to them as as that, uh, and and then and then and then just have an enforced rule of positivity. 
It's just like, yeah, man, sorry, I'm only going to show, we are only going to believe what we loved about that show. Even if it felt like it was a hard one, everybody's going to pull something out that they loved and emotion that shone and Maybe it's even um, if uh, if there are like particularly um, strong emotions coming up after a performance, and maybe um, you feel like you can't be in that deep breathing space, it might even serve to to sort of say, um, you know, like, this conversation isn't the right thing for me now. How about we circle back and we debrief tomorrow, but it's still fresh in the minds, but maybe some of the intensity has died back. That, that could be a, another way to manage that. Um, uh, one of the things that I've heard around that is um, positives in public, negatives in private. Because um, mm. if you're giving someone negative feedback in front of a group of peers, they can yeah. feel quite bottom-up about that. Yeah. Um, so like, by all means, create that atmosphere of positivity um, as a group around the around but if you've got anything specific that you need to address with someone, bring it up with that person directly and in private rather mm. than um, making a big case of aggressive deal of it mm -hmm. in front of a group. Hi. Yeah. Yeah, because you yeah. never want to shame anyone. Hi. Especially if you are not sure of their intention yeah. or understand their reasoning. We always want to make a really generous assumption around some, someone. So, and we can see. So this is a uh, COVID-related question, which we may all just be completely over. So we'll just see how this goes. We can move on quite fast if we want to. Uh, what are some effective methods to maintain a healthy mindset during COVID? As that refers to know, during lockdown, maybe, or just generally about how the world is. And or even if you have like plans with family overseas or in mm. situations. Yeah. I, I mean, I think COVID kind of is still happening. Mm -hmm. We're still in a, an alert level and there's some talk of a vaccine. The reality is, is that even if there is a vaccine, it's, it's going to continue going. So I was talking to someone earlier about this actually, is that um, there's this idea that we it's like we, we should be unaffected by our environment, <laughs> but our environment is inherently affecting us at the moment, um, affecting our ability to cope through like even just simple challenges with day to day life. But yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing that is happening that is affecting all of us. Yeah. I don't think we have to pretend that we're not thriving. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing is actually being really honest with yourself about how you are in any given day. And it's okay to be affected by it to ask for more support and to reach out um, and just exceptional support in various different ways or yeah, however that looks. Um, so at the moment I tend to um, take taxis more because of sometimes I just don't want to take public transport or the fear of getting sick gets the better of me. Um, and so as a form of support, I just taxi more. Mm. It's just what support looks like for me at the moment, and it's okay. It's accepting that that's something that I'm just choosing to do for myself and not just being embarrassed or you know, dismiss that as something that I need. But I think there's lots of different examples for people around what more support, what support looks like at the moment. Yeah, and it's really personal as well. So that might not be someone's form of support, is, you know, the use of cars and the environment might. <laughs> but you know, each to their own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Um, oh God, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I always feel like some resistance to this question because um, on one hand, I feel like almost like bombarded with things that you can do. You know, sort of like live it and take up news and take a walk in nature and check in with somebody you love and all this stuff. Um, which which is brilliant and great and like and I definitely have my own little um, self care routines and things to get me through. Um, I guess um, I worked throughout the, the lockdowns and um, uh, so I had I had my own experience of it and um, and then when when we went back into level two, it was a really interesting. Um, almost like bodily sensation and I just felt the panic like rise up in me again and it was a real like in my body kind of feeling um, and I just felt like mobilized into action at, at work because we had to put a, a number of things in place um, and everybody was kind of feeling that like suddenly everyone would be sort of coping and then it was suddenly just like oh my god panic and and it, you know, it actually was fine. Like we've done it before. We just implemented the things again, and, and actually now I do have like a <laughs> kind of like a little um, COVID station that's always there with like buckets with face masks and gloves and all these things, just like ready to go to like hand out to people. Like it's like the bloody Titanic, right. <laughs> 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 handing out life jackets. Yeah. Totally. Like doing it quite yeah, they shoot under the desk, sneaking under the desk. Yeah, totally. So I guess it's just another form of that, and that does help, like knowing that um, that those things are there to just grab and go. Um, feels good. space to adapt to a different world, but also to continue as much of normalcy as you can. Um, so I thought it was important to keep improv going. It's a lot of improv stuff like shows and uh, classes and things like that online. Um, and that, yeah, I'm actually curious to hear about people's experiences, what, what they did during lockdown, during improv that was helpful or not helpful, stuff like that, regarding improv. Did you still meet up with your friends, or how did it go? I remember talking to a colleague who's a mind and pop facilitator in the States, and, and she was telling me that all the movies were written online. Everything's going to be soon based on everything to myself. Oh, well, you know, that's useless for us because we work with all the people, so that's not going to work. 
And then about 24 hours later, I just said to myself, why do I just make that assumption that that won't work? Why, why would I assume that just because somebody's older, they won't be A, have access to the technology or be comfortable with it? And so we went out to the groups that we facilitate on a weekly basis and we said, you know, would anybody be interested in gathering in a Zoom format? And they all said, hell yes. <laughs> and, um, and throughout level four and three, and again, uh, when we went back into level two, um, we did heaps of um, Zoom improv classes with you know, people in their 90s, 80s, and 70s, and it was really joyful. Yeah, yeah I really loved, I loved that space, and it was really interesting to watch. I think you know, there were some people who were, at, who were almost more comfortable in their little square and from the comfort of their own. Um, yeah, particularly, I think, for poor people who were older because that was such the demographic that had the fear of God placed in, in them with this whole pandemic. And so for them to be able to be connected and creative and playful and joyful without having to leave their room mm. was um, thinking about um, the skills that improvisers have. I think the ability to be adaptable mm. um, has, has really been enough. What I've seen is a lot of art, people in the arts have thrived because of that skill set to be flexible. And responding to whatever's in front of them, um, which is you know having to do things online. Yeah, I think that's a really huge asset that we yeah. have. So I guess I see a lot of organisations who aren't as agile like that who have really struggled to move teams onto Zoom. Um, yeah, my experience of improv during lockdown was that I did uh, did some online, uh, and so I did some classes and a show. Um, for me personally, like I found it initially, I felt resistance to it, and I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. But I also realised that I much prefer just in person. <laughs> um, and just the type of improv I do, I feel for me personally, it lends itself to being um, physically in the same space as someone and and feeling that kind of connection. Um, that being said, uh, the I think the the opportunity for sort of international improv um, coming coming together is really cool. Like I, I have some friends who um, teamed up with some people in the States and did an online improv show from New Zealand and the States. Uh, and then also um, the opportunity to uh, have workshops and master classes with people with improvisers from around the world um, who, who would come on Zoom and do that. So yeah, definitely like I think smooth with, smooth with the rough for me. Um, and and I, I think I ultimately was glad that it was there and available, um, even though I do prefer being an actual theatre. Uh, speaking of um, international connections, I'm just going to do a little name drop for those of you that don't know that Global Play the Game, uh, globalplaythegame.org. Um, check that out. So I helped set that up during COVID with some colleagues in the States, and our, basically our aim is to do, just do free play sessions with people all over the world. Yeah. And, yeah. If you're interested in yeah. facilitating it's It's got some good, um, yeah, it's got some good company behind it. Uh, okay, uh, I'm just going to move us on because I really like the sound of this question here, and I think we're all going to answer this question. Cool. Okay, so what is the most significant piece of advice that changed the way you saw yourself and how you wanted to create? I think mine was kind of anti-advice. <laughs> 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 so 
someone gave me a piece of advice that I then took on board and realized it didn't work for me and I learned lots from it. Which, when I was first, first starting out making theatre, theatre production company, name drop, even though it's not existent now, Paddocate Productions. Um, um, but when we first started out, um, there was a, I guess a mentor or just someone working in theatre that we really admired said, um, you've got to make sure that you start thinking or start planning your next show before the other one finishes. That way you'll keep momentum and you'll never lose momentum. And you're like, oh, great, that's the way to keep on going. Is to never stop. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't stop. It was three and a half years and we'd made something like 12 shows. And we just would feel this big up and down each process. It got to the point where we were like, can you tell this? And who said that that time? Like, why? But I think going through the experience of it and then coming up being like, it's actually really important to stop and reflect, debrief, um, look back at what worked, what didn't work, and then have it rescued, and then keep on going. So, never, and I think, especially for myself and my own personal development as a performer without that level of reflection or looking back and stopping and looking back. I just kind of didn't really notice my development. It just kept on going and going through. So having that, putting in that self-reflection has been really important for my whole life, I think, because it's now brought up in several years of ability to like, understand how I am at any given time and really take note about. Yeah, similarly to what you just said, Sarah, I, I kind of got like two, there's two pieces of, they're not necessarily advice, but it's more just kind of um, notions. One is, um, it's like, yeah, do improv, but like, take a break from improv as well, and, and um, actually go and like live your life and do other things, because that's sort of a way that you can sort of um, top up the tank a little bit and actually have something to do improv about. For me, certainly, sometimes I'm just like, Oh God, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah. same job. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, well, I always play this character. Um, so yes, yeah, so having other experiences as well, and other things that that you're passionate about or that just bring you joy. And then uh, another thing is something that I think it was like the first improv class I ever went to, um, and it was like a free a free taster class. Um, and I went in, I was like. Because <laughs> I've not really had much experience in improv before. I've done other things, but not improv. And um, and I just remember this sort of notion that like there's no such thing as failure. Like you can already do it. And like how you arrive is absolutely just wonderful and perfect, and it's full of you're full of gifts. And um, and I remember we played a game called Loser Ball, which is where you have to not catch the, the imaginary ball, and you have to delight in the fact that you don't catch it and I just found that really really refreshing and I was like oh like was all right you know <laughs> so yeah so um there's no such thing as failure and uh I'll take a break every once in a while got <laughs> people in the room any piece of advice or um I can't remember who said this to me first but uh, one of the people that I resonate quite strongly with it in my mind is Jason Geary, but um, uh, if something's not working, change it. Um, 
uh, we, we have this remarkable freedom in our art form that, that we can be live to whatever is in the room and whatever's happening. And if something's not working, we have the power to change it. But that piece of advice, if something's not working, change it, kind of has two parts. The most obvious part is the change it part. You put all your attention on, like, how do I affect that change? How do I, how do I make it better? But actually, it's really important not to lose sight of the if something's not working part. Because how do you know if something's not working? How do you place your attention where it needs to be to pick up that, that something's not going quite right? Whether that means paying attention to the audience or your fellow performers or the state of the world that's recontextualizing your work or whatever it is. Like, how do you know that that's not working? So it's kind of dividing that phrase equally. If something's not right or if something's not working, change it. Uh, it's not really advice, but I think it's a really powerful thing. Um, why? <laughs> the question why? Um, so for me in this context, it was, um, I, coming to this was like, this was really, you know, put a lot of pressure on myself to impress everyone, and like, I needed everyone to like me, um, and then someone just asked me, why? <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, that weirdly made me like, more connected with people, not mm. caring what they thought. Um, was less thinking about myself. Mm. Yeah. It's a, a great uh, great game that I love to play with um, anybody that play with me. Uh, you know, the why because game, you check this paper and uh, I write on my why stone that somebody writes on this. We just go around and say my why. Why is one action so bloody windy during <laughs> spring and then somebody will give me their because answer and it would just be Gold. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's such a great yeah, well, beautiful. Um, so I'm just thinking of um, you know, one of the things that was strong for, for me and um, the improv that I like to do, which is sort of um, more emotionally truth based spontaneous theatre. Um, from the lovely um, body block that's based in Philadelphia, is to is to play play with your play with your truth, play with your personal truth. Um, so I would choose to come on the stage uh, as a nun because I have not been a nun and I'm not a nun. But I would choose to come on the stage as a as a mother or a friend or something. So, yeah. Mm. And and that's always um, yeah, that's always worked really well for me. I, I really like to play with yeah, I like to play with my personal truths on stage that works really well. And another another one that's not advice again, but it's just one of those uh, you know, somebody said it, and it just—it's always stuck with me. Um, that you know, this improvisational performance, this improv play that we do, or this—you know—role play gets such a tarnished sort of phrase. So many people hear about role play, but this improvisational sort of play that we do, where we step into roles, um, is the one space where we are um, who we are and who we have. Teacher to become in the same moment. And uh, I just don't like always holding on to that because I think it's such a uh, powerful um, recognition of the developmental space that we are in. We, we perform or when we provide opportunities for other people to perform. Um, and yeah, it is a space of becoming, being yourself and who you have the potential to become in the same moment. Um, how would you deal with someone? Is toxic, like for that group. Um, what strategies do you have, and what um, what practices do you have that uh, 
ensures that everybody comes out of that meter, including the doctor person themselves. I always think about how everybody needs support, um, and potentially the person who is um, maybe unaware of how their behaviour is affecting people within the group dynamic, we can probably need more support um, because of that lack of awareness, or maybe fully aware of their actions. But I think definitely lots more care in naming without shaming it, naming without shaming, um, recognising the level of whether there's distress involved in anyone in the group in providing immediate support or support to, um, through that level of distress, first and foremost. Um, and then, yeah, what I guess I would refer back to health first aid skills, which is to figure out what um, what their support looks like outside of the group, um, professional and social supports, and if there isn't any to help that person to develop some, um, and also everyone in the group to develop some supports outside of the group as well. Um, I guess I would put the emphasis on the leader of the process to make sure that everyone is okay in that. Um, and create a sense of shared responsibility that we all want everyone to be okay. I guess it's if the leader is the toxic person, then um, that makes things quite challenging. But I think as a group, there's, um, there's resiliency and connection and um, being together in that. And um, it's like not bystanding to um, seeing. environment right now 
it feels like that could take years and years and years, and so we don't do it because we're like, oh, I don't want to disrupt the flow, and, and you know, we've got something to be, but in my experience, it always resolves something to call a pause and unpack or stop something to then move on past that. And I think slowing down to speed up, and that's really important for people's well-being and sense of self to This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Douglas, and made possible thanks to the New Zealand Improv Trust, Creative New Zealand, and Victoria University's internship program. The New Zealand Improv Festival Close to Home ran 3rd to the 10th of October 2020 at BATS Theatre. Learn more about it at improvfest.nz or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.